welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Westside. Our church is located on Manhattan's Upper West Side, where we are living out the sacred call of Jesus to love our neighbors and heal our city. This is a reading from the book of John, chapter 17, followed by a reading from the book of Philemon, chapter 1. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And from Philemon chapter 1, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. This is God's word. Good morning. It's it's great to see you. We are, during the month of July, looking at different periods in church history. So if you have missed some of the last few weeks, then you're, we're catching up. But we've, we've covered the ancient and early church, then the medieval church, the Reformation church, and now we're at what I'm calling the, the modern church, essentially the last 300 years. And of all of those time periods, by far, this is the most complicated for me to talk about because of the sheer volume of things that have happened in history and in the church over the last 300 years, right, as you can imagine. And so what I'm talking to you today is going to be really important, but it is just, you know, one fraction of of 1% of all the amazing things that have occurred over the last three-plus centuries. So let's find some thread, at least to connect them all, that ties these particular passages with what has happened uh, in the history of the church. And and one of the threads that we can use, because it's certainly one of the most important threads of analyzing history for the last several centuries, is the the concept of the the struggle between freedom and people trying to control and stop that freedom. And if you go to almost any kind of history book today, that's going to be a major theme that runs throughout much of the book Freedom versus control. Now, that has been a massive human struggle. It has not been easy. Uh, It has been, in fact, incredibly bloody and horribly violent because the struggle for freedom 
has meant lots of wars. It has meant when people get freedom, they misuse it. When people try to gain their own freedom, they use it by stomping on other people. Right? And so what we've seen, of course, in the, that time period is the, the colonial expansion and all the revolts against it, right? The, the American Revolution. You've got the French Revolution. You've got all the civil wars. You have the communist revolution. You have the various fascist revolutions. Right? You have the cultural revolution. All these different struggles have been a battle for freedom. Now, during that same time, the church of Jesus has been growing and expanding and changing and moving into places that it never was before. So if you're here for the last, you know, four weeks, the whole story has been essentially about the Mediterranean world and Europe. But now the story completely changes. Now it covers the entire planet. And that is one of the most amazing differences of Christianity in the last several hundred centuries. And it all started in this, this bridge between what we saw last week, the Reformation era, which was also the era of expansion and exploration as the European countries decided to extend their empires around the world. And in the midst of that extension of the empire rode along missionaries. Now, sometimes those missionaries weren't good, right? They, they were sent along essentially as agents of the king to just control everybody. But many of the missionaries that went were fantastic people. They did all kinds of things that were good, or mostly good. Right? One example, of course, is Francis uh, Xavier. Francis Xavier, in 1542, sailed along with the Portuguese merchant ships and landed in Goa, India, what we now call Goa, India, on the west coast of India, which is a major trading hub for the Portuguese. But because the Portuguese, unlike the Spanish, didn't try to conquer land, they just kept it as a port city. And Francis went and was able to love and care for people, to try to change the culture in good ways, to help people see who Jesus was. And many, many people uh, became Christians and started churches. And there's actually still now ancient churches in those scattered islands on the, on the west coast of India. But then in 1549, he continued on with the Portuguese merchants and sailed all the way to Japan and was absolutely one of the very earliest Christians to ever reach Japan and bring the gospel there. And he spent a long time, and then more and more Jesuit missionaries came. And over the course of the next several decades, 300,000 Christians gathered together in Japan, a country that had essentially never even heard of the gospel before. And those Christians gathered together and formed a city. And the city was called Nagasaki. And unfortunately, yes, it was that same Nagasaki that was wiped off the map in World War II with the atomic bomb. But that city of Christians survived even though by the 17th century, the Japanese leaders tried to wipe out all Christians in the country because they were seen as a threat. But the so-called hidden Christians kept the faith alive in their own country, passing along to people at incredible risk to themselves for centuries. And that's an example of the story of what has happened in all kinds of places around the world over the last several hundred years. So that now we get a Christianity that is in absolutely every major language group in the world, that 62 plus percent of the Christians in the world are now in the global south and the east, 
It's a very, very different kind of Christianity. So are we in the best era of Christianity ever? In some ways, yes, right? It's, it's fantastic that Christianity is global now. In some ways, you know, maybe not so good. Churches split. There's more good that's done in the name of Jesus. And there's lots of falsehoods that have been presented in the name of Jesus in the last several hundred years. There is more missions occurring that care for people, and yet Christians, uh, particularly in the West, are more self-centered and selfish than they've ever been. So this era is both fantastic and it's troubled, and this is where we see the gospel come to bear, because the struggle that each of us individually have, and as cultures we have, and as the church we have between being free and being united in Jesus, being free in the gospel, or free to just live the way we want, those tensions are very much at play right now. And so what I'm going to do is take a look at these passages, look at them under three headings. Uh, First of all, we're going to see in uh, Jesus's prayer the idea of freedom instead of autonomy, right? Freedom instead of autonomy. Then we're going to see freedom instead of, of course, its opposite, which is slavery, freedom instead of slavery. And then lastly, we're going to look at freedom instead of division. So freedom instead of autonomy, instead of slavery, instead of division. And those are three incredibly massive concepts and themes that have occurred over the last several centuries. So let's jump into the first one. Let's go to John um, chapter 17 passage. This is Jesus now praying. This is the night before he died, and we've been looking at this passage in different snippets over the last uh, several weeks because here's Jesus communicating with his father about some of the most important things that need to happen for the rest of history. Right? And so this is what he's caring for. Is he, he uniquely can see down the corridor of time and knows uh, we, we all need. And here's his prayer. Verse 20. My, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is prayer. Jesus is praying for all the future believers. Okay, let's go back to some of the concepts. In the Reformation, right, the idea that one could follow after their own convictions about who God is, and that meant that that was more important than following merely after what the king said or the Lord said, right? Following God was more important. Good thing. Negative consequence. Over the course of the next century, then the idea of, wait, whatever we think is noble and good, whatever we can reason becomes the most important thing regardless of what the king says. And that idea, in a sense, what we would call the enlightenment, right, that reason is better than power, settled into Europe. A lot of good came from it. A lot of terrible things came from it. Because enlightenment not only led to great things like democracy, good, good, right, it also led to a world of, of independence, human independence, what we would call in a sense sort of a form of, of secular humanism where the urges for power or for wealth or for pride became the most important things and then they became justified through the use of some sort of reason. Right? 
We like freedom, we just misuse the tools that freedom gives us. And that's what's happened, of course, for centuries and centuries and centuries. So Descartes and Kant and Voltaire and Adam Smith, they were creating a moral world of reason alone without the need for God to be present. There's other invisible forces in the world. And of course, did that create utopia? No. This sort of secular enlightenment led to what would be called a post-enlightenment or an existentialism, which has led down now to postmodernism. Is the world better now than it was 300 years ago? And the answer to that is very complicated. Of course it's better. Like, wouldn't you rather live now than, you know, 1723? Probably, yes. I mean, electric lights alone, right? All these technological changes, all these recognitions of, of human dignity and the capacity for humans to do things have all developed over the last several centuries. Those are all great things. But is the world utopia, right? Are the promises that an enlightened world without God can create, did they happen? And the answer is clearly no. We were just as much against one another. We're just as much suspicious. We're just as much, in a sense, at war than we've always been because that can't answer it. Now, a famous uh, historian, Arnold Toynbee, uh, Bruce Shelley, in his book, talks about his analysis of history. Arnold Toynbee, the eminent historian, once suggested that the 20th century, now let's just focus on the last 100 years, the 20th century marked the displacement of all the great world religions by three post-Christian ideologies, nationalism, communism, and individualism. Nationalism, communism, individualism. These ideologies assume the character of a religion. They each make ultimate demands. There's patriotism, class struggle, or secular humanism. Each has its own sacred symbols and its ceremonies. It has its inspired writings. It has its dogmas. It has its saints. And it has its charismatic leaders. The creation of these post-Enlightenment ideologies, particularly over the last century, have attempted to do something that they would never claim, which is religion is, is worthless. And yet what they've done is actually created their own religion. And Christianity has, over the last century, had to face a world awash, not in just the religions of the, of the Roman world or the, the Celtics or the strange people that they had to encounter in the Middle Ages, but now against forces across the entire globe that are denying that religion is even a thing. So, what is the definition of freedom? Right? What, is, what do you think of when you think, I want to be free? And most likely, if you're you know, 21st century North American, your answer is somewhere along the line of, freedom means freedom of choice. I am not compelled in other words, I get to have my own particular identity, and I get to find my identity, and I get to live out my identity. If you ask most people in our country what freedom means, they're going to land somewhere around there. Freedom of choice. Right? I mean, is that all good? No. Now, one reason it's not good is the fact of how many potato chips are there in the grocery store? 
I mean, how many different kinds of potato chips are there? I don't even mean brands of potato chips. I mean each kind of each brand, right? Do we need, you know, wavy, barbecue, onion and chive, potato chips, baked not in oil, using organic fake ingredients, right? The, the, the list of adjectives, and a silly thing like a potato chip, right, is the very essence of what our, our culture describes as freedom. Those are my kind of chips, as opposed to you who like those kind of chips. I get to define my own identity. I get to explain who I am to people, and I get to live that out, regardless or irregardless of what other people want. That is not the definition of freedom in the Bible. The ability to choose exclusively is not what the Bible says is freedom. What the Bible says is freedom is, is the freedom from sinful desires that lead you astray and the freedom to actually be able to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to live in a godly way. It's not freedom to do something, right? It's freedom from something that is entrapping you and keeping you from actually being the kind of person that God built you to be, your identity in him. And that is a much greater, more potent freedom. That's not the kind of freedom, though, that, of course, people have been fighting for. Which means, and this is really important, when you look at all the not all, but when you look at a lot of the ways that Christianity has been twisted over the last several centuries, it is because Christianity has been co-opted as a means of controlling people. And I think one of the clearest and grossest examples of this would be the Nazis in the 1930s leading up to World War II. The Nazis secretly said, internally, that religion, just like all the other things that they were trying to control was utterly useless and they were going to wipe it out once they gained their goal of controlling the world. But in the meantime, they knew that they needed to manipulate Christian people in their country to blindly follow, in a sense, their religion. So they created uh, the Nazi uh, Ministry of Church Affairs. One of the many disgusting things that they did. Hans uh, Kerl was the person in charge of that. He was the Nazi minister of church affairs. And this is his quote. This is what he was pushing in the 1930s in the lead up to World War II. National socialism is the doing of God's will. God's will reveals itself in German blood. And true Christianity is represented by the party. Now, every sentence is just revolting. And yet that is what was pushed the Christianity finds its ultimate meaning not in the freedom of an identity in Jesus Christ, but Christianity finds its ultimate meaning into being German, right? To being part of the fatherland, to be part of this pure and noble race. That's the essence of Christianity according to them. The few people who could withstand that in Germany, the resistance, were people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other ministers and Christians who quietly tried as best they could to resist the, the continual conscriptions into the army and so forth. And here's what Bonhoeffer says. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now compare those two Germans. 
Christianity is part of the fatherland. Christianity means to die in Jesus. Now, who, who, who is more free? Who is more free, the Nazi walking around in power? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a Nazi concentration camp preparing to die right before the end of the war. Bonhoeffer's more free because he's free in Jesus regardless of his chains. So that's the first big thing, this, this, this fight between autonomy from God and true freedom found in God. Second big theme over the last several hundred years is freedom instead of slavery. Now, I'm using slavery in particular because I would say that that is one of the, the single most important goods that Christians have done to stop in the world over this time period. So let's look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to Philemon, who is a, is a Christian that he's writing a letter to. The letter's being carried by um, uh, Onesimus, who was Philemon's slave, but Philemon has sent Onesimus to Paul to take care of Paul while Paul was in prison. And Paul's sending him back now, but he's sending him back with this fantastic short little letter. It's the hardest letter in the New Testament find. It's only one page. If you flip through your Bible, it's easy to miss, but it's there. Let me just begin at verse 15. Hey, hey, listen to Paul's argument. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This is Paul's appeal. He'd earlier said, I, I could command you to do this, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to convince you out of love to do this. And here's this convincing. Look at Onesimus. He's a Christian brother. He's, he's your brother now. And he, had, he is your slave. I want you to release him so that he can solely be your brother in Christ Jesus. Paul puts Onesimus on the level of himself. And he says in the verse after this, right, I'll pay his debts. Why? Because Onesimus and me right now, we're the same. We're the same in Jesus. Christians were caught up for sure in the problems that the colonial expansion caused. There were many people who claimed to be Christians who were slave traders. There's many people who claim to be Christians who own slaves in America, in the South, up to the Civil War. And they claim to use Scripture in different ways to prove their reason why somehow their slaves weren't people and they had the right to control them. But the kind of theological hoops that they had to jump through and the hijinks that they had to create to flat-out ignore books like this letter to Philemon and clear other passages in Scripture that denounce the fact that humans could ever own another human. But when the Christians who realized and taught and pushed this is what the Bible's actually saying. This is what belonging to Jesus really means. We have got to stop this evil. Pushed hard. Okay, the clap him. 
community, which is named by the place that they met, was led by a man named William Wilberforce. This is in the late 1700s into the early 1800s in the United Kingdom. The Clapham community was a group of very devout Christians who recognized that the the United Kingdom's slave trade was, was heinous. And so they began, because Wilberforce was a member of parliament, they began the process of trying to convince the nation that this was wrong, which meant they were going up against every person of power and wealth in the realm. Slave trade existed because it made a few people just obscene amounts of money. And so they carefully spent a generation pushing towards the end of this. His very first speech on this in Parliament was in 1789. And, you know, he was laughed at and pushed aside. But they started then using public opinion and writing letters and pushing Christians in other parts of the country to see the problem. And so finally... The slave trade in England was abolished in 1807. And it took until 1833 to finally end slavery totally in England. And Wilberforce, who had spent his whole life doing this, he was a pretty young man when it started, died four days later. His life was devoted to this cause of setting people free because of Jesus. Now, key phrase in this, that a lot of people who were what they would have been called abolitionists back then used, was Paul's view of Onesimus in this passage, right? That he's a full man, that he's equal in Paul's stature. This idea of the dignity and the value of human beings as, as distinctly created by God was, was one of the driving forces behind how people ended slavery. Now, I mean, you know, in America, we've got the two, the two Harriets, okay? Harriet Beecher Stowe and Harriet Tubman. Harriet Beecher Stowe was um, an author, uh, a serial author. A lot of her books began as sort of weekly, th- it was, you know, basically podcasts in the uh, 1800s, like a weekly thing in, the, in your weekly paper, and then they would be collected and sold as books. And of course, her, her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is known as, you know, essentially this single most influential writing of the early 1800s that allowed people a glimpse, and it was fictionalized, of course, but it gave people a sense of what it was was like, particularly those in the North who tried to ignore what was happening in the South, of what it was like for people who lived under slavery. It was in a dramatically important book, such that when uh, later Harriet Beecher Stowe visited Abraham Lincoln in the White House during the Civil War, he greeted her saying, oh, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that started this war. (laughs) Because, right, Harriet Beecher Stowe grew up in a household, you know, her father was a Congregationalist minister and, and a reformer and a revivalist, and it was her view of Christianity that went into seeing, I've got to tell people that this is wrong. Harriet Tubman The other great Harriet of the Civil War, she herself was a slave who escaped. And and typically, if if a slave escaped, you would never go back to the South because you could easily be caught again and and killed or put back into slavery. But she went back 13 times to bring back 70 more slaves down through what what was called the Underground Railroad. Incredibly great peril to her life every single time that she did it. But to her, because of what she knew about God, she knew, quote, 
he meant that I should be free. And she was willing to sacrifice herself to make sure other people were free too. So let, let me ask this. Christians, you know, were the major cause for the end of slavery in, in the United Kingdom and in America. Um, made many of the key scientific discoveries of this last 300 years, uh, built asylums for needy orphanages, created the concepts of hospitals, fought for suffrage, fought for worker safety during the Industrial Revolution, and you can also thank them, they created the two-day work weekend. Okay. The two-day weekend is a Christian idea so that you can rack, relax, chillax, go to market, do your stuff on Saturday, and still wake up on Sunday morning and go to church. Which makes sense, right? In an industrial world where everybody worked horribly hard in terrible conditions all the way up till Saturday night, got paid in cash, drank it all on Saturday night, they weren't going to church on Sunday morning. So we have a weekend because of worship, which is great. But those kinds of changes, right, these are social changes that have attempted by understanding how the gospel can work good in the world to make the world a better place. So the question for all of us is like, how, how are we willing to spend ourselves for the sake of other people now? Right? If the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, became a servant so that I might be set free in him, how, how might I use my freedom to help others be free in Jesus? How might I use my freedom or the church collectively together binding ourselves to do things to make sure that good in the world is happening because, not because of humanism, but because of Jesus. John Wesley in the 1700s wrote this, and it's, it's an amazing quote, but it also makes you feel terrible at the same time. Okay? Do all the good you can. Do all the good you can by all the means that you can in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Yes, that's fantastic. Think about it for a second. Is that how you live? Like most of us, it's like, I'll do all the good I can if I feel like it, if, it's not, if I'm not busy. And that's the end of it. Now, let me go on. But first, just a little side note. I recognize by saying Christians ended slavery, that that is a gross overstatement. They ended the official slave trade in the United Kingdom and in the United States. But right now, in this world today, there are 50 million slaves and forced labor. 50 million. And, and the big countries are India, China, North Korea, Nigeria, and Iran. And thankfully, there are Christian organizations like IJM and many others that are still out there, still fighting this fight to release people from slavery, because slavery is just horrible. And so that is but one of the many things that Christians have done and still do. So, third, freedom instead of division. John 17, Jesus now is continuing his prayer to the Father the night before he dies. And Jesus prays this for his people, future people. I've given them the glory that you gave me, 
that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is a a remarkable prayer. I, I really recommend you read this over and over again. See what Jesus is praying? Is that the gathering of his people is such that it's creating a unity of their complete body in the fact that the very essence of what the gospel is is that Christians are united to Jesus and that the Father and the Son are united together and that by the Holy Spirit, everyone in the Trinity is bound, including now all the people that belong to Jesus are bound with them. That's his prayer. And as he is praying, looking through centuries and millennia of time, we're actually seeing this being fulfilled in a new way in the last hundred years than ever before, which is really encouraging. Christians are now on every continent, right? Every major language group, lots of different political identities, cultures, nations, and so forth, right? The only thing that people like that all over the world share is Jesus. Meaning this, if you happen to be a Christian, you have more in common with somebody that you've never met before that has, you don't know a word of their language, but they're in Jesus, than somebody maybe who lives right next door to you in your apartment building who doesn't know Jesus. Who you can speak to, you get it, you like the same movies, you share the same elevator, but fundamentally, your life is different. But Christians all over the world are all the same in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is praying here. Now, the one thing that you might pause is to say, but wait, aren't Christians all split up? Right? There are rough estimates as there are between 35,000 and 45,000 different denominations. 45,000 different denominations. Now, when you look at that number, you think, oh, that must mean Christians don't get along, right? Because they, they keep breaking apart. And, you know, as the famous you know, story would go, you know, you could go to an island of 20 people and it has one church and you come back 15 years later and there's now 25 people on the island and there's three churches. <laughs> the idea, though, this is, began in the Reformation, the idea that you could be a part of the body of Jesus and yet, visibly in a different organization, what we would call a denomination, right? A denomination is one part of the denominator. Prior to, you know, towards the end of the Middle Ages, prior to the year 1000, the denominator was one. If you were Christian, you were one out of one. After the big split in the year, you know, the 11th century, now you're one only out of two. But by the end of the Reformation, you were one out of maybe 10. And now you're one out of 45,000. But the recognition is, is that denominator number at the bottom are all bound to Jesus. And so no matter how far out it gets, for those who are truly in Christ Jesus, invisibly you are all part of the same exact body. So in a very paradoxical way, the very nature of our many, many different denominations is the very thing that has actually has caused unity around the world picture no reformation. There still is only one church. Would all those missions have happened? No. 
Would people everywhere be a Christian if they still had to speak Latin and nobody knew the Bible except for the priests? No, it wouldn't happen. And so the very thing that, in a sense, broke Christianity apart is actually the only thing that unites it. For example, there are now, of course, I said earlier, more Christians living in the southern and eastern continents than there are in Europe and North America. There are more Anglicans in the nation of Nigeria than there are in all of Europe and North America combined. So just one kind of denomination. That tilt means the, the shift of what Christianity looks like, feels like, sounds like, has been shifting and will continue to shift for many, many decades. And the thing that caused it is not just the missionaries, right? You, you think of the great, the great missionaries like Francis uh, Xavier and others. But most of the time, the people that brought this unity of the gospel to bear into the lives of other people were just ordinary people like you and me doing their jobs. And it was in their jobs, in their ordinary callings, where they were faithfully present that Jesus was able to go forth. You know, Bonhoeffer, he was a professor, uh, somewhat in, and a theologian. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe was just a writer, novelist. Uh, William Wilberforce was a politician. Harriet Tubman herself was a slave. Other examples, in 1603, uh, Yi Su Guang was a Korean diplomat. He was just a diplomat sent to Beijing. When he got to Beijing, he saw these odd books that he had never seen before that were left behind by some Catholic Jesuit missionaries and took them back to Korea. And as far as we know, in a sense, that's the very, very first Christian writings ever to land in the nation of Korea by just a diplomat. Uh, Henrietta Mears was uh, in the middle of the 20th century. She was the head of Christian ed in charge of the kind of um, college and young adults ministry, right? The kind of just on staff at a local church. Henrietta Mears, uh, you maybe have never heard of her before, but she probably is one of the most influential people in the entire 20th century as far as Christianity is concerned because her kind of college young adult ministry, Sunday school classes, allowed her to teach and through her teaching influence many of the people that went out of her classes out into the world to start many of the most major, largest Christian organizations that have existed in the 20th century. All influenced through her, one person just teaching. And the way she described what she did was, she said, well, you, you teach a little bit by what you say, but you teach most by who you are. And that idea that ordinary people with the character of Jesus doing their simple job faithfully is what unites Christians. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're paid by the church or just attend a church. Doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a year or 90 years. The character that Jesus develops in you shows to other people. And as Jesus is praying, right, that we would all be bound together, that people might see Jesus in the character of the church because of the character of the people in the church. 
And friends, let me just summarize this. If you're not a Christian, I hope you realize I'm not trying to ignore the real problems that actual Christians have caused over the last 300 years, many of whom did it because they were being completely and utterly inconsistent with what they thought they believed, or they were manipulating Christianity to do it. And that's terrible. I get it. I don't like it. You shouldn't like it either, right? But many, many Christians have done incredibly great things because of the gospel. And if you are a Christian, let me sum it this way. Depend on God's power, not the world's power, right? Don't try to be autonomous. Use the freedom that you have in Jesus to help other people be free. You've got the greatest gift there ever is. Why don't you share some? And then third, be faithfully present wherever God calls you because that is how collectively we are united as the voice and hands of Jesus. All right, we're ending now our history. We have caught up to 2023. Um, And as you can see, all these threads that we've been looking at still continue. So starting next week, um, we are going to continue on through the future to the end of the story because the story didn't end in Acts and the story doesn't end today. Uh, The story actually might end today, but let's assume the story's not gonna end today. The story might continue for a long time, and let's, let's take a look at what that might look like starting next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the, the great things that you have done over the last dawn of time to this moment, and that your people, the church, have seen you and been with you and suffered with you and felt your comfort and been pushed to love others have fallen away and been restored and have woken up each day not knowing what you might do in their lives. Father, your your people are blessed because your Holy Spirit is always in our midst. And I ask for your continued favor upon all of us that we might step into this great, huge story and play the role that you have written for us. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We invite you to check our website to learn more about the church and how to get connected to our community. Just visit RedeemerWS.com.